Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Williams and you're listening to Know Your Own Psychology. After many years building a successful career as a psychologist, I finally realised that it didn't reflect the autonomy and freedom I wanted in both my life and work. As I made plans to begin working for myself, my husband died suddenly and my whole world fell apart. But with a young family to look after and big dreams I did not want to give up on, I took some time and in the middle of the global pandemic, I left my old life behind. Today, I'm a private psychologist, digital course creator, mum to five and best-selling author. My mission is to simplify psychological ideas so that you can know your own psychology, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose. Are you ready to be empowered? This is Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. Today on the podcast, I am talking to Hannah Bardell, Member of Parliament for the Livingston constituency. Hannah is one of my oldest friends and has been on quite a journey from a small town in West Lothian to a prominent female politician. Along the way, there have been highs and lows. Terrorist attacks on Parliament while she and her team were locked down inside, working from Westminster with all the challenges that brings, Brexit and some inspiring work on deaths that happen abroad. In 2015, Hannah came out to her friends and family and in 2016 followed this up by doing so professionally. This month is LGBT History Month and so I wanted to ask Hannah onto the podcast to talk about the interface between psychology and politics, her experiences of coming out and what's next for her. This one was so fun and interesting to do. And I know you're going to enjoy it. So welcome to the podcast, Hannah. I am so honoured to have you here to talk about your experiences and what is LGBT History Month. So yeah, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. A pleasure to be on as someone who's like, it not just because you're my pal (laughs) (laughs) no I'm so excited to have you because I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting conversation um okay so let's just kick off I wonder if you could just give us a bit of an overview of how you landed in politics and what your influences in that were it's a very good question um I suppose it all starts at home really where I suppose a lot of people's political views are formed at home and in, and in my community as well, which I now have the privilege of, of representing. But yeah, I mean, we were, my brother and I were brought up by my mum on her own um, in a single parent family in the 80s. My grandparents were both from mining families, so working class socialists from very old labour backgrounds. <clears throat> and my mum, you know, struggled like many people did then and was ostracised by the then Thatcher government. I mean, I think she spoke openly about wanting to lock up single single mothers and in institutions. So that was the kind of backdrop to our upbringing and more locally, you know, several rounds of school closures and my mum being very active in the community in trying to stop those. And just kind of, you know, a very engaged household. You know, my mum and grandparents talked a lot about politics and were very involved just in local causes and an organisation. So I suppose I was politicised from a young age without 
really realising some of my earliest memories of us making placards to go to the protests for about local school closures. And then I suppose at university as well, I, I got involved in the, the National Union of Students and in my local student union at Stirling University, which we both attended mm-hmm. and was the women's officer a couple of years running. But I never joined a political party. I never saw myself as party political actually I always saw things more through the spectrum of issues um and so yeah and then I got my dream really was to be a war correspondent and so I pursued a career in the media and and worked I was very privileged well I worked hard at work experience and trying to get uh, placements and I got a job at university with GMTV and that led me into a job in a, on a political programme and then briefly to work for, for the party, for the SNP uh, and, and for the former First Minister in, a constitu- in his constituency office. And then I left politics in 2010, having worked in it for about three years. I left for about five years and worked in the energy industry and worked for a foreign government for the American State Department as a local staffer. And, but I missed the work predominantly the constituency work, that thing of being at the coalface and helping people. And that's really what drew me back in the end was the opportunity to stand in my local area. My mum had, I had talked my mum into standing in 2010 mm-hmm. and so had campaigned for her as a political candidate. That was at the Westminster election. And she, by 2015, was in her 60s and a granny by then my brother had had a wee girl and and I think she felt that she was too old which I disagreed with (laughs) profoundly but she just decided she didn't want to stand and there were four local candidates all men uh, all good local councillors but I just felt well mm, if not now then when and why can't I put myself forward And, and so I did a lot of soul searching around that and yeah put myself forward for selection kind of somewhat unexpectedly got selected because I had been living away from, you know, the constituency for a number of years yeah. and uh, and then have got elected in 2015 and have, thankfully, I'm very lucky and privileged that I've, you know, continued to get, got, get elected and I represent the area that I grew up in and, and the people that I grew up with and that's that's doesn't make you a better politician. It, it gives you a different perspective and experience, I think, that's quite unique. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, So many um, things to pick out of that. And, um, you know, one of them being about how engaged the household was. And I remember um, when we met in high school, sort of um, having this sense of your family is so engaged politically. And it wasn't necessarily something that I understood. And so I got to sort of learn a bit more about politics just through spending time with you, spending time with your mum. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But I'm also picking out this idea around... um, what you were really interested in was people helping people and we quite often have discussions about how yeah. you know the the position between psychology and politics and we'll come on to that a bit more but actually um I asked your permission for this before we um, started recording so I know it's okay but I'd said that I wanted to share a bit of our personal story and so when we were in high school um I'm sure you'll remember we had a maths class together and occasionally we would get a supply teacher who shall remain nameless and I remember this teacher once in class turning to you and saying something like you'll never amount to anything Hannah and (laughs) (laughs) I actually think she might have been a history teacher oh really was she okay okay somehow or other I've remembered maths okay okay and so 
yeah, I guess I'm just sort of, it's interesting, isn't it? And I just wondered, you know, what would you say to that teacher now? And how important do you think it is when we as adults think about how we communicate with sort of impressionable young minds? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really, it's a really good one. I mean, the context of this was obviously that I was, I think, and I have a very vivid memory of it, throwing <laughs> planes down the, from the back of the classroom, like, thinking <laughs> I was funny you know and this poor woman was just trying to keep the class under control and doing our very best in quite a challenging setting because we had some real characters you know it was a really there was some incredibly brilliant people from you know had lots of different music skills art I remember there just being so many talented people but there were a lot of big characters and a lot of really pretty bad behavior as well you know anyway I guess I remember thinking that I was bold enough to stand up to it and I felt that it was so out of order that I I had to be like, well, actually, I think they're wrong (laughs) and we'll just see, won't we? I think I said something along those lines, um, even though I knew I'd crossed the line. But, yeah, I suppose fundamentally you can't... Speaking to kids like that and saying something like that to a young person, I think it's one thing to call them out rightly and be like, you're up to no good you're at it uh, but to tell them that they're not going to amount to anything is is could be crushing for a child or a young person you know and, and you know teachers have such a difficult job and such an important job and but but saying something like that to a child which took from like our school our yeah, Broxburn Academy took from a really diverse area yes and a lot of really poor and underprivileged areas where young people and children were were coming out of pretty challenging and difficult circumstances and a lot of poverty and you know maybe didn't think that much of themselves and you know I came from primary school out of Craig's Hill where you know there were and continue to be significant challenges if you're saying a young person you're you're not going to maintain anything just because they're being a bit naughty I mean that's just terrible yeah, and, and I guess that's it, isn't it? You know, so for you, it, it kind of made you feel quite bold and perhaps motivated you um, a little bit, you know, as well. But for, for other kids, that might have had a different impact. And I guess, you know, it's just interesting when you go to a high school like ours, you come from an area like ours where it was very diverse and there was a lot of, um, you know, sort of poverty and, and those different bits and pieces and yet you know people do make something of themselves out of it and I guess that was the point you know that everybody um you know can turn things around and that um it was just interesting to sort of reflect on that a little bit um thank you seeing the opportunity as well I think seeing the you know my mum for most of my high school years worked as a as the head of residential management for a local children's home and it was a with the children with some of the most profound behavioural and emotional issues you know and and she talked about the amazing talent that a lot of these young people had whereas in a I suppose in a mainstream school setting you know we would get as young as younger students frustrated when those children who were probably on the cusp of going into residential care would get taken out to do fun things and I remember complaining to my mum about it you know I would be first or second and she's like listen you know she gave me an outline of what these young people were dealing with at home. She's like, you've no idea what they're dealing with. Mm. They get and a bit of, you know, something fun and somebody's seen something positive in them. And I think that's what it comes down to ultimately is 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 trying to find ways 
and it's not easy and I'm not a teacher so I can't speak to that but you know of of making the best of each of each young person's potential and making them feel even if they're being a bit naughty like raising the bar like you can do better than that that's not what we expect of you rather than being like you'll amount to nothing (laughs) absolutely and actually um I ended up working in that residential um school that your mum had previously worked in and I remember talking to her about that you know years down the line and Mm. um you know, gaining some experience of like working with kids who were really struggling in life. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, next question I just wanted to touch base on. So, in 2020, I was lucky enough to come down to London with my partner Murray, and I mm-hmm. got a whole sort of parliamentary tour with you. And yeah, I guess I just wanted you to maybe reflect a little bit on what it's been like working in an environment like Westminster with all the challenges that you might face within that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a different world and I've often discussed this with colleagues, you know, it's, it's a weird, it's a very weird experience where it's both an honour and a privilege to represent your home constituency, where you grew up, and, you know, go down and, and I'm an opposition politician at Westminster, so else the party that I represent, the SNP, is in government in Scotland. We are opposition politicians at Westminster, which is an important thing to highlight, just in the sense that, you know, you're you're kind of always on the back foot in some respects, but but you're 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 there to to still stand up and represent your constituents. And I'm essentially trying to I suppose work to put myself out of a job but also try and improve things while I'm doing what I'm doing and Westminster is is a place like no other I've visited parliaments all over the world part you know from nations in Africa to parliaments in Australia and New Zealand <laughs> um to European parliaments uh and and I I can honestly say hand on heart that there is nowhere like Westminster. It is an old boys' club from from the ground up. You know, it's built the built environment, and we we talk a lot about that now. I think in terms of how your built environment affects the psych, you know, psychologically mm-hmm. how you operate, and it's just it's a beautiful old building. Yeah, as a piece of architecture, stunning. As a working building for a modern parliament and a modern democracy utterly useless and I say that you know with some reticence but just the the way that all the ancient traditions all you know the kind of secrecy to the way the place operates so it's very very intimidating but it's also it's designed to scare you and and to keep you on the margins if you're not in the center of the elite so, you know, you're spending a lot of your time just trying to work out how to use it to, <laughs> I suppose, to, to the best advantage of your constituents so you can raise their issues and so you can get things done. And then that's the kind of, over, you know, the, the backdrop to it. And then if you think about I got elected in 2015, you know, we then had Brexit. We had, we've had two members murdered in cold blood, just doing their jobs in their constituency. Joe Cox, who was a Labour member, and, and Sir David Amos, who was a Conservative member, both people that I knew relatively well and had done work with, in the case of Sir David, different parties, but that doesn't matter. Uh, a police officer murdered on the grounds of the parliamentary estate and a terrorist attack. 
and just an increasingly hostile and divided environment in terms of social media, the press, and the very aggressive attacks on, you know, verbally on on parliamentarians. And if you happen to be a woman or from a working class background or from a minority, as I am, then, you know, there's additional layers and aspects to that death threats, things that I never thought I would see or read coming into your inbox. Not just people threatening you, but just, but what I've seen in the, I started in 2010 and I got elected in 2015 and in the, you know, 15 years since I've been working in politics, I've seen some tragic trends of people just in desperate need. Yeah, absolutely. Impact on both you and your staff who are who're opening those emails up and yeah. trying to help people every day. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's so interesting that you bring up those things because that was literally my next question, you know, thinking about the murder of Joe Cox. You mentioned Sir David Amos, um, and you know, the terrorist attacks, and you and your staff team were there that day and got locked down. And you know, I remember that day like trying to desperately get hold of you and one of our other friends who worked for you at the time. Um, and I guess I just wonder, you know, what you think the psychological impact has been, you know, on you working in this sphere. Um, yeah, like what what the impact has been on you? Oh, I mean, it's definitely been significant. And we work now, my team, and that's been something that we've had for, I'm not sure how many years, maybe four or five years with a trauma counsellor. And she does individual sessions and group sessions with us as a team. And we try and, you know, we have various different systems within our team of how we support each other and try and create that environment because it is such a difficult job. Uh, But there's no getting away from just how challenging it is. And sometimes you just don't know how to cope with it, you know, because you're in such, I remember all through the Brexit period, you know, you were leaving Parliament every day and it was so surreal. The whole world was watching. And any time you went anywhere, you know socially (laughs) and with your friends or you know I remember my partner at the time understandably getting quite frustrated and exasperated and and even my own family my brother saying to me you know yeah is this is this how you want to live your life kind of thing like is it is it worth it you know he has a huge amount of respect for what I do but quite reasonably asking about my personal safety you know we all had panic buttons installed in our homes after Joe Cox was murdered and security and just just that kind of mindset of something could happen to you at any moment, but equally you just you just want to be able to do your job and, and, and serve people. That's what you're in it for. And you're not nor should be treated as any kind of exception. Um but but there are aspects of the job that are exceptional. Yeah. And that you know, that does definitely and has had an impact. I've certainly thought you know, mental health support at, at various points, counselling, coaching, you know, and to, you know, some of which to do with the things that we've experienced. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, Parliament does now have an employee assistance programme that offers staff and members a fairly reasonable level of support. But <clears throat> some of the stuff is, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, just things that you, you know, it's so surreal to believe that, you know, people would be targeted in that way just for doing their job. Um, and yeah, it's just great to hear that there are things in place for for people, you know, to to seek the support and the help that they require around trauma, for sure. 
Um, and actually, moving on just slightly, one of the things that I try to embody in my work and when I do choose to talk politics, which isn't all that often, is mm-hmm. advocating for social justice. And the last few years, you know, has seen in government has seen policies which I believe have had a very negative impact on the nation's collective mental health. We're currently in um, the worst cost of living crisis I've seen in quite some time. And I guess I just wondered what your views are on how politics or yeah, what politics should be doing regarding mental health and social justice at the moment. Yeah, it's a really important question. And I think we find ourselves in a particularly dark time. And, it, you know, I think I should talk to people who struggle to just put the news on at the moment, you know, from whether that's stories about, you know, violence against women and mm-hmm. children. You know, there's some been particularly horrific ones in the last couple of weeks, some of which we, we've been dealing with in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the general, the amount of hatred that there is online and hostility towards different minority groups, including, you know, asylum seekers and um, people who are fleeing tragedy, famine, war and, and seeking refuge and refugees to, you know, the LGBT community, black and minority ethnic community, you know, there just seems to be so much hatred and frustration. And, and, and also when you, I think as a society, when we're in a situation where people are more marginalised, when they have less and they feel you know that they're they're not able to uh, fend for themselves or 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 have the resources or the ability to just do the basics. People inevitably turn in on themselves and just want to think about themselves and their own families, and that's totally understandable. Mm. But you know we've had Brexit, we've had COVID. You know there are various wars raging in the world that are having a, a broader impact, not least the war in Ukraine. But I think Brexit was the sort of beginning of a lot of it. Um, that really divided people and has done huge damage. And what I've seen, you know, from my arrives in Parliament, I worked on the welfare reform bill and, you know, a real cutting and I hate the word slash, I don't like to use the the language of violence politics, but a real reduction in benefits and and the welfare state. Uh, So people just falling off the edge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the government's first duty to look after people in need, how you treat the most marginalised in your society is always a measure, I think, of of who you are. And, you know, of course, I'm going to say that I think my party's doing doing its best. There's always more that can be done. Mm-hmm. And it's not always about money. It's all quite often about, you know, reimagining things and, and, and how you work together with different people. But we are finding ourselves in a situation that in Scotland where we don't have borrowing powers, we only have a certain amount of money that we're you know, we're creating our own social security system and trying to put, you know, compassion and, and decency at the heart of that and look after people best we can. But we're doing it against the backdrop of really savage reductions in benefits and, and welfare and also jobs just not paying enough, like good jobs, people who are in well-paid jobs or yeah. the public sector who can't, who can't get by, you know, and and understandably people are striking and and so and so they should <laughs> you know and if we had all the money and we were able to borrow we 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 would and could be paying people as much as as possible but it's 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 a bit and I'm not in government I don't have to make these decisions but I think it's hard 
wherever you are. But choices are being made. You know, we're seeing stuff around energy companies, huge profits at the same time as bankers being allowed, you know, legislation telling bankers to be paid phenomenal bonuses. And you think, you know, that's just not right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, I bring up that question because as somebody who has worked in mental health for over 20 years, what I know to be absolutely true is that when people don't even have the basics to get by, to feed their families, there's no doubt it's an impact on mental health in a way that people just cannot control, you know. Um, yeah. it, it breeds unhappiness in a way that, you know, people just, you know. Um, and well-being then becomes, and, and you know, we are putting an increasing focus on it and trying to put as much resource into it, certainly in Scotland. But when you look across the board, across the UK, from the cuts that have, you know, are coming, you know, and, and have happened already in the NHS and in other areas, social care, it's it's devastating. It's devastating. People are not able to uh, be looked after properly. Um, so, again, we're trying to you know, mop, mop that up as best we can in Scotland, but also asking people to do more for it, with less, you know, and I think that that's very, very challenging. And yeah. a well-being economy, and we're, you know, there's a big focus on that, particularly in Scotland. And other, you know, you look at other, like, Scandinavian nations who have a huge focus on that. Yeah. What can we do to like that? No, absolutely. And it's just such an important area. And I, you know, I don't think um, it's a, there are any simple answers, um, but thank you for sort of outlining your thoughts on that. Um, okay, so moving on just slightly. So this month is LGBT History Month. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was around your coming out. So I wondered if perhaps you can just reflect a little on your experiences of this how you feel X number of years on and whether you think it's easier or harder now for people to acknowledge their sexuality openly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll start at the last question and, and work backwards. It's okay. a difficult one to answer because on paper, from a policy perspective, you know, we have equal marriage. We have, you know, much greater protections for LGBT people. Um yeah, we have a really distressing backdrop to rights for trans people who are a really small minority and, and a huge amount of hatred and misinformation being whipped up in the media around it. Uh, and that, and a lot of people saying that as a broader LGBT community that they feel they've never felt as unsafe because that attack on one particular part of the community we're already seeing conversations particularly coming in the US of a restriction of rights and a demonization of one particular group and then inevitably people get tired about hearing about a particular issue so you know it gets fed more and more so I want to say that with all of the the progress that we've made that you know the scrapping of section 28 education in schools that just teaches young people that lesbians, gay people, bisexual people, transgender people, that we just exist, <laughs> you know, age appropriate, that, that we have families, that we are normal people. And even just folk like me getting into office is is, is really important. Uh, so that it will make it, in theory, easier for the next generation to come out, I think, 
broadly speaking, it is. But then you look at individual experiences and you talk to people and everybody has their own, diff- you know, own stories. And I remember people saying to me when I was coming out, oh, it's so much easier for you now when it was me, you know, a couple of older folk and not many. And I remember thinking, well, you know, everybody's experience is different and, and that's a sign of progress. It mm. it delights me that we now have young people growing up, that my nieces and the children of my friends and any children I might have won't know any different. Whereas when we were growing up, it was, you know, to be dirty and and just not able to just have the privileges of exist of existing without there was something wrong with you. So those the stigma and those stereotypes I think will pervade our society for quite a long time yeah and they've done a huge amount of damage to people's mental health and and well-being and certainly were you know some of the reasons why I think it took me so long to come out yeah the kind of prejudices that pervaded society when we were growing up had a profound impact on you know our generation in terms of accepting people who are LGBT or indeed being LGBT ourselves you know we went to school with people who are no longer here because they took their own lives because they didn't feel that they could exist peacefully you know and that's there are communities all over Scotland all over the UK and all over the world where that is the case and there are still many countries where it's illegal where there is the death penalty and we've come a long way in Scotland and the UK but progress never you know you can never stand still so I think there's still major challenges. And whilst we might say, okay, well, you can get married and you can live your potentially live your life in relative peace, it's not for me or anyone to say for a young person that's coming out today or coming to terms with their sexuality that that's not going to be really challenging. Yeah. Especially their parents, who are probably, you know, our generation or a bit older, yeah. grew up with the kind of prejudices that we grew up with and yeah. the stuff that we saw on TV. You know, when I think about, some of the programs that we have now, whether it's sex education, Heartstopper, you know, you could, you could, I could rhyme off a whole load of programs that are, we want to say, inclusive, that have positive representations of LGBT people. That just didn't exist when we were younger. You know, it was just, you're weird and you're wrong and you don't fit in, and actually, you're you're a predator or you you know. It, that kind of stuff was so damaging and it had such a profound psychological impact on some people that they either didn't come out or came out later, like myself. You know, I was 32 when I came out. Um, or or did come out and suffered horrific bullying and were held back, potentially, in, in life. So, yeah. Yeah. you know. And it's just, it's fascinating hearing you speak about that because I think that was my sort of slant and the question was, you know, on paper, as you say, it, it should it should be easier, you know, but actually there's so much, you know, around now, polarisation around this stuff. But, you know, even when I think about my kids and how they um, view you and how normalised mm-hmm. it is that you have female partners and love is love and all that kind of stuff. And they just... It's just not a thing for them. Yeah, I'm proud of that. And I hope that, you know, as generations, you know, um, keep coming through, that that will just get better and better for people. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, now, ne- next question is just another bit of a um, shift in topic. 
So in recent years, you have been involved in absolutely amazing and essential work on deaths that happen abroad and how grieving families are treated when something like that happens. And obviously, as you know, sudden death is something that I'm all too familiar with. I'd love to know what you think some of the key mistakes are that are made by, you know, big organisations or government, you know, when when something like that happens. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally it's a lack of compassion and ability to, I mean, nobody can put themselves in your position or the position of somebody whose loved one is killed suddenly, dies suddenly, and particularly who dies abroad where, you know, there's very little support. Um. But they can offer compassion and try and support them through what's a very difficult journey. And I think we're starting to get a little bit better at trying to understand that. But my experience has been, sadly, you know, these are the number of people killed abroad or who die abroad are relatively few. Um, But we've seen horrific events over the last few days in in Turkey and Syria with the earthquake you know, the war in Ukraine, you know, you could, any number of terrible tragedies. And there will be people from the UK caught up in that. And, or or people in the UK whose families are caught up in that. And they're just desperate for news. And communication, I think fundamentally, what so much of it comes down to is communication. Yeah. And uh, big organisations not being able to grasp how important just a kind word or... Yeah a nice approach uh, which is supportive that you know quite often I get folk contacting me in my job as as a local MP and I know off the bat that it's going to be really difficult to solve the issue for them but regardless you always try and you always do your best and you always take the time to listen to people because sometimes you never know and I think a lot of the time people are living in a world now where so much is automated so much is faceless systems and sort of managerialism that the human contact and the ability to just reach out to people and say, right, tell me about this. Tell me what's happened to you. Let me see if I can fix it. And I always I have a sort of stock phrase that I use and that my team use. And I always say to people, look, I cannot promise that I will be able to fix this, but I'll do everything in my power to try. And I think yeah. a lot of the time that's all what people want to know is that yeah. It might not be totally fixable. You might not be able to solve it, but you've taken the time to listen to them. And so often we have people coming to us who are like, nobody is listening to me. I'm going, I'm being pushed from pillar to post and nobody wants to hear me. Yeah. And that's just creating the space for that. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I love that. And how much of it just comes down to, you know, relational um, dynamics and being able to just be with someone exactly where they are whether or not the problem is solved and I think so much of um, therapy is like that and you and I speak quite often about how you know much of your job is about listening to people and relating to people um, and meeting them just where they are you know. But a lot of society's issues at the moment are you know compounded by Covid the fact that people spent most of their lives online you know if they were able to and terms of having devices or, or internet indeed but people were very isolated and they became I think people's views on things have become more polarized because they spend much more time online and social media is such an echo chamber and people just don't want to listen to each other you know they don't want to meet in the middle and I I say that as a politician but I I actually spent you know 
like I'm sure guilty of getting caught up in debates and being very firm in my views but I I try really hard to listen to people who have different views from me and surround myself with people that have got different views from me so that you get different perspectives and I think we're we're going in quite a dangerous direction actually in the world where people do not want to associate themselves with people who have different views on things from them. Yeah no absolutely I agree I agree. Um, okay last question now mm-hmm. You started the podcast telling me what an engaged political household you lived in. And I certainly got a sense of that whenever I met you in high school. And I was reflecting on that because when I was growing up, there was this sort of implicit message around you do not talk to people or share who you have voted for. Mm-hmm. Now, I really work hard to talk to my kids all the time about politics um, helping them understand it you know all of that stuff feels very important and yeah I just wondered like what do you think we can do to help people understand the importance of politics and how it impacts so many areas of our life I, I mean I think there's a huge job firstly just in the language that we use in politics and the terminology like it is so um what's the right word I'm going to say not disc- well discriminatory yes so much about politics, UK politics particularly is discriminatory, but you know, the language, the rules like I sometimes stand up in the House and debates in the House of Commons and I think people are going to be watching this thinking what on earth are they talking about, section blah of this clause you know, and it's like it's a completely different language it's kind of like the law you know, I mean, it is the the language itself is designed that you have to almost (laughs) have a degree just to understand it but it, but it is to keep people out, and mm. and that's really, uh, that's really problematic actually. So I think I remember having an argument once with somebody about the fact that elections and politics didn't affect their life, and yeah. you know my my instant and very physical response to that, and it was a physical response was like, don't be ridiculous, how can you possibly say that? And I just. You know, and they were just like, well, it doesn't. And I had to really stop and think and challenge myself and say, no, whether it is the roads being cleared, your bins getting emptied, all the way to uh, what immigration policy we have and how people or whether people are allowed to move and work in different places, it all has an impact on us. But I had to really break it down for myself, but to also to get through to that person and say, look, I understand how you might why you might think that, but actually, here's why politics has such a huge and profound impact. And the problem that we have, I think, today is that, understandably, MPs and parliamentarians are demonised because of all sorts of bad things that some parliamentarians have done mm-hmm. in every walk of life and in the world. There are, you know, a, usually a relatively small selection of of bad people or bad actors who potentially and particularly in positions of power seek out that power to abuse it Mm. the vast majority of people and I believe this of all parties the vast majority of people are going into it they might have different ideas about how to achieve their goal and how to make things better but they all have a genuine desire to to do good they just have different ideas about how to achieve that and we have to respect that but I think it becomes very difficult my mum tells a really profound story about when she was in her teens or early 20s and she, my granddad, who was very politically engaged, said, was taught they were talking about politics and she said, what I hear people saying all the time 
And I often challenge it. Oh, they're all the same. Oh, politicians, they're all the same. They're all just in it for themselves. And my granddad said, well, you know, it's unthinkable that we wouldn't have government because otherwise we'll live in a dictatorship, right? It's unthinkable that we wouldn't have government. So if we must have government, we want to have good people in government that we believe in. And if you don't believe in the people that are doing the job, then it behoves you to get off your backside and do it yourself. <laughs> I really... It's such a powerful story and it's the same thing with voting. People often say to me they get frustrated yeah. with people that don't vote. And it's like, well, you can't complain if you don't vote because and in so many places around the world we we don't have people don't have the right to vote. I don't believe in being so absolutist about it. I believe that we have to take people on a journey to explain why voting is important and how to how to disseminate the information, how to understand what people are talking about, but also we have a duty as politicians to make it more understandable as well and to break it down for people. Because you can get so caught up in the bubble and in the language that you don't stop and think, actually, why don't I just explain to people what I'm doing and communicate that to them at a very, you know, not to patronise anybody, but, but, you know, people's lives are busy, you know, so you need to explain it in, in fairly straightforward terms. Yeah. No, I love that. And it makes so much sense. And actually um, parallels to sort of um, therapy speak and how, you know, we just need to communicate simply, you know, what the issues are about and help people understand them, you know, um, and and how it relates to their lives for sure. Um, now, I said last question, but actually this is the last one. So I often <laughs> ask, well, as, as the last question, um, what do you know about your psychology now that perhaps you didn't know in the past? Hmm. I think it's probably about trusting yourself. There's something about, and for me, you know, coming out was a big watershed moment in the sense that I didn't, you know, I knew there was, it was something I needed to deal with, but I didn't have the confidence to deal with it. I felt uncomfortable in my own skin in some respects. And so I didn't trust myself. And that's quite a disempowering feeling. And it's, you know, I had a really profound impact on my mental health, but then, and I heard something recently, it was a podcast, I think, and it was talking about when queer people, LGBT people come out, how they almost have like a second, it's like a second puberty or a second growing up, because you've like done a lot of growing up, but then you've not grown up as your Mm -hmm. true self, if you want to say. Mm -hmm. So I think what I learned from that was about trusting myself, because I've done a lot of grieving for the time that I spent not being open and honest with myself about who I was and I often thought well if I'd come out in my teens or my 20s I would have been able to live all that time I would have been much happier but actually now I've got to a point where I'm like well I don't I don't regret that I will still have always have regrets and reflect on it but actually that then becomes quite powerful to talk about because Mm -hmm. you can say well you know I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't had that experience yeah and I learned so much from it that I can take forward. Yeah. And I've got to a really important point. And maybe it's something about, you know, we're both turning 40 this year, so we'll feel that. Um <laughs> you've outed us. <laughs> I've outed us as, as approaching 40. Um <laughs> so I think it's something about being a woman as well, of of like, you know, the older and more mature you are you know you learn a lot more about yourself but to have the courage of your convictions to stand up for what you believe in and have the ability to to recognize when you get things wrong and 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 acknowledge that um but yeah to 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 believe you know to believe in yourself 
I think yeah. is, is huge it's a huge thing it's that. a huge thing yeah no no it's it's hugely important isn't it and actually just you reflecting on coming out and mentioning like prior to that it had had a massive impact on your mental health and I still remember when you told me um and you know how the, the backdrop to that and how unhappy you'd been and what in, yeah. in a funny kind of way it wasn't a surprise but we all had known for a while that you just were not yourself um, yeah. And so, you know, it was a very brave and courageous thing to do. And yeah, you've, you've, you know, not looked back, you know, there's been ups and downs, but yeah. No, absolutely. And it's, I think it's as well, you know, it's, it's still in some ways painful and difficult to talk about. I find myself sort of clamming up because I then worried, worried again, worried I get upset. And I did quite a lot of counselling after I came out to just try and come to terms with it and just process it because it, it just, you know, I hope nowadays that nobody will have to have, you know, people won't have to go through that, that this, it's, it felt like such an enormous thing to, to kind of deal with because you, you've, you've built your identity, you've lived your life in a certain way, and you've put in a certain image out there to the world, to your friends, to your family. And then actually I started to think, well, I'm still that person. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not actually that different. It's just, you know, it's just about who I love and, and mm-hmm. that idea, that, kind of understanding yourself in terms of, of your identity. I mean, I often say like it's it's an interesting part of who I am, but it's not the most interesting part and it's not the most important part. And yeah. I I struggled. I, I didn't struggle, but I, I thought a lot about whether I was going to say anything publicly, but then I thought we're still at the point where representation matters, you know, mm-hmm. and being open, not necessarily in an in-your-face way, but we do live in a society where people just assume heteronormativity, that if you're a, a woman, that you'll be with a man. And the language that we use around that is still, you know, people are still evolving in terms of using, you know, neutral terms. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, some people often say, oh, that's easy. You know, we should just all do that. And that's really easy. But it's not, it's not if you have grown up in a really heteronormative society mm-hmm. and a very white society to use terminology that's, that is neutral or and inclusive. Yeah. It's a shift for people, and we and we have to, yeah, we just have to always try and do better, but also not beat ourselves or other people up if we get it wrong sometimes. Hannah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. I knew it'd be interesting. Um, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I've loved it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Know Your Own Psychology. If you loved it, please share it on Facebook or Instagram for your friends and family. And if you really want to help me out, drop a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, you can email me, hello at drlaurawilliams.com. And if you would like to know your own psychology better, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose, come and join my growing community over on Facebook. Search Know Your Own Psychology and make a request.